Thank you so much, Calvin. Uh, good morning, everyone. So we are taking a break from our series in the Beatitudes, um, switching from the New Testament to the Old, primarily, from a single verse to many, and from a point in time to a span of centuries. And we're going to take a look at a theme that may be very relevant to some of you right now, or may not. And if you are in that second category, can I encourage you to squirrel away some truth for yourself today for another time? So all that's come, but first of all, a story. Are we sitting comfortably? Billy's family had gone on holiday and his parents had found a beautiful little cabin on the shore of a lake in Scotland and they'd just arrived. So uh, Billy's dad had uh, unloaded the car. He was reading the holiday home instructions, as some people do. Mum had started uh, arranging the kitchen to her liking and Billy and his older brother, Benny, had started to explore. Now, Benny was 12 years old, he was a, a good lad, um, and uh, he was supposed to be watching his little brother, but um, as happens with some teenagers, he got engrossed in his phone. Billy was only four years old, and he loved exploring, and he saw this shiny boat at the end of the dock. So he wandered down to the uh, dock, and uh, with one foot on dry land and one foot on the boat, you can imagine what happened. The boat started to pull away and Billy lost his balance and fell in. And the first thing that Benny knew about it was the splash. He didn't need to know anything else. He knew what had happened and he did the thing he, you know, you'd expect him to do. He shouted, Dad, Mum, Dad, quick. So Dad came running he twigged immediately what had happened. Uh, no sign of uh, Billy in the water, so he jumped in and he swam down to the bottom and frantically felt around. The water was a bit murky, couldn't quite see things as he'd like, but he felt around, could f couldn't feel his son under the water. Came to the surface, gasping for breath. Went down again, started looking again, and on his way down, he just brushed something. And he realized that his son, Billy, was clinging hold of uh, one of the posts that formed part of the dock. So he grabbed, he grabbed Billy, prized his fingers loose, and together they came up um, uh, into, in, onto the uh, surface of the water, gasping for breath. Well, finally, when the adrenaline had stopped surging and uh, his nerves had just calmed down a bit, his father said to his son, what on earth were you doing down there, hanging onto the post under the water? And little Billy replied, I was just waiting for you, Dad. Just waiting for you. And sometimes it can feel to us that we are hanging on, just waiting for our Heavenly Father to rescue us, maybe, to comfort us, to encourage us, to guide us, to keep his promises to us, maybe even to take us home. 
just waiting for you, Dad. Just waiting for you. And if there's one person who knew a bit about waiting in the Bible, it's Abraham. In Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham received this most amazing of promises. Just imagine for a moment hearing those words addressed to you. Calvin, I'm going to make you into a great nation. A great nation. Anyone who blesses the nation of Hollingworth will be blessed. Anyone who curses the nation of Hollingworth will be cursed. Every nation on earth will be blessed through the nation of Hollingworth. Just imagine that promise being applied to you. Incredible. So with that promise ringing in his ears and his heart, Abraham, Abraham, as he was called, then left. Didn't know where exactly he was going, um, but he was looking forward, no doubt, to many, many sons. The first of many sons and the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. But God is not in a hurry. And time passes and Abraham moves on and the promise is repeated to him in the land of Canaan. Look around from where you are, Genesis 13, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that, I, that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could not be counted. But God is not in a hurry. Time passes. Things happen. Battles are fought. The promise remains, but it seems no nearer than it was right at the start. And by chapter 15, Abraham is starting to wrestle a little bit with it. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And so the Lord took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. So Abraham is reassured. We're told he believed the Lord and the Lord credited, credited I can never say that word, credited it to him as righteousness. But still, God is not in a hurry, and more time passes. We get to chapter 16. Abraham is now 85. The pressure is growing. Sarai, his wife, is running out of patience. She is 75, too old to have children. So she said to Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. And Ishmael is born to Sarai's slave, Hagar. So Abraham has a son. At last, it's not how he imagined it, it's not what he expected, but at last he has a son. 
Time passes. 14 years later, Abraham is now 99, and it appears that Ishmael is not the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham because the Lord visits him again. This is my covenant with you. You you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations, not just the nation of Hollingworth, but many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac by this time next year. Well, Abraham was up for it, but his faith was now stretched to the limit. And he laughs and says to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? But finally, in Genesis 21, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At last... At last, the God who takes his time is on the move. At last, those promises spoken so many years ago can begin to be fulfilled. At last. Except there's a twist in the story. Genesis 22, God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, some of us may have all manner of questions about what is going on here. And uh, ironically, in this message about the God who takes his time, I haven't got the time to say anything about it. But that will have to be for another day. But for our purposes today, the key point is that he is willing. And because he is willing, Abraham doesn't have to follow through on God's command. Isaac lives, Abraham passes the test, and once more God repeats his promise. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. At last. But God is still not in a hurry. Time passes, Abraham dies, leaving behind a promise of descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and one son. Well, let's speed up a bit because there's quite a lot of the Old Testament to get through. (laughs) Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 sons established themselves in Egypt. In Exodus, we read the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, became so numerous that the land was filled with them. At last, the promise is coming to fulfillment. A great horde escapes Egypt, but there is a huge setback. Instead of a journey into the promised land that should have taken them 11 days, a whole generation passes away after 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They get established in Canaan, but there are more setbacks. The nation follows cycles of doing evil and suffering oppression and turning back to God again, growing again, then doing evil again. The golden age comes with David and Solomon. Israel never had it so good. But the kings that followed them 
led the nation on a downward spiral, which ultimately led to the overthrow by the Assyrians and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we come to Jesus' day. Now, it's impossible to say with any certainty how many Jews there were in Jesus' day. One historian has reckoned that at the time of Nero, there were one million Jews in Syria and Lebanon and the areas east of the Euphrates, 700,000 in Judea and an additional 1.5 million in other places. So an estimated 4.2 million Jews in the first century world. So in 1,700 years or so, from the promise to Jesus' day, one son has become maybe 4.2 million. Except that's not the end of the story. 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, some of those 4.2 million Jews were assembled in Jerusalem, bless you, for the day of Pentecost. Bless you again. God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were there. We read in the book of Acts. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up to preach. And 3,000 people are converted on that day after his very first sermon. Not bad for a trainee. And those Jews from every nation under earth who heard the gospel and believed it, took it away with them. Paul writes to the Galatians, those who have faith are children of Abraham. Those who have faith are children of Abraham. But God is not finished. Time passes, and this is what happens. So now we're getting somewhere. According to a, a research by PewResearch.org in 2010, the estimated Christian population was 2.2 billion. Now we can quibble about that number and its accuracy, but whatever the number is, it's a big number. It is a big number. So in the 3,700 or years or so from the promise 
to Abraham, to our day, one son has become 2.2 billion. One son has become like the countless multitude, like the stars in the sky, like the dust on the shore. Except that is not the end of the story. Because God is not finished. Time passes. We don't know for how much longer, but the end of the story is described in the final book of the Bible, Revelation, about a day still to come when there will be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Now, God can act suddenly. He can move very fast. But he is also a God who takes his time. And his time to us can seem like a very long time. And so we need to be patient. But it's hard to be patient sometimes. Brazilian author Paul Coelho has written, Patience is not about waiting, but how we act when things take longer than we expect. Patience is not about waiting, but how we act when things take longer than we expect. I waited patiently for the Lord, we read in Psalm 40. Familiar words, I'm sure, to many of us. But the original Hebrew doesn't actually read, I waited patiently. In fact, it doubles up on a word that means to wait or to hope. So a literal translation would read, to wait, I waited for the Lord. Or informally, we might say, I really, really waited for the Lord. Or as the message translation puts it, I waited and waited and waited for God. That's patience. And that can be hard. That can be hard. We have doubts. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham had said. Do we really hear God accurately? Has I, have I really heard correctly what God has said? Is he really going to come through for us? We have doubts. get frustrated because the waiting is so hard we adopt coping strategies alternative plans remember Abraham again Sarai's wife said the Lord has kept me from having children Abraham go sleep with my slave perhaps I can build a family through her Abraham agreed he was getting frustrated too God's finding this one a little bit tricky let's just help him along a bit we're getting frustrated. We can get cynical. <laughs> yes, I've heard that one before. I know that scripture. More words. But when is God going to act? And we're tested. Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac. That can't be right, God. That goes against what you've promised. That's not the kind of thing you would do, is it? 
we're tested. And the pressure of all of these doubts and frustrations and testings can be immense. So much so that our patients can snap under the weight of it all and we can throw in the towel. But Abraham's patience did not snap. Why not? Well, we're given a hint, I think, in the New Testament. He was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. So how is it that Abraham believed to the very end, despite all of the setbacks and the frustrations and the pressures, the delays, how did he pass the tests? How did he get over his cynicism? He was focused on something that was going to last. There's a story about the famous artist Auguste Renoir, one of his best friends, Henri Matisse, even though he was 30 years younger, was his constant companion. And during the last decade of the famous artist's life, when he was confined to his home because of his crippling arthritis, Matisse was visiting him daily. And in spite of his pain, Renoir kept painting and did so almost to his dying day. And on one occasion, he was struggling with every brushstroke. And Matisse said to him, Auguste, why do you continue to paint when you're in such agony? And apparently, Renoir replied, the beauty remains, the pain passes. The beauty remains, the pain passes. There are some things that remain. Cities rise and fall, but there's a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. <clears throat> So if you are struggling and waiting for something, for rescue, for comfort, guidance, for a fulfilled promise, for whatever it is, if you are struggling in the waiting, don't give up hope. Remind yourself of those things that will last, those things that will remain. We heard read to us in the, the reading from 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So we need to look beyond the frustrations and the tests to something future and keep believing but not just to the future. And on this verse, I finish. It's a verse that struck me recently uh, as I've been reading through Deuteronomy. And they're on the verge of the promised land. And Moses says to the people, be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart. And it was that word fade that really caught my attention. We don't suddenly forget what God is like. But if we're not careful, the things that we've seen and believed can fade gradually, imperceptibly, unnoticeably from our hearts. 
And so Moses says to them, be careful. Watch yourself closely so that you don't forget. So remind yourself what God has done in the past. Then you'll have more confidence for the future. Then you can live more hopefully in the present. Even if God appears to be taking his time. Amen.